Welcome to Alchemical Dialogues, an Amber Light podcast. Join Dr. Henry Cretella and Dr. Alice McDowell for their discussion on Dance of Light. The information provided on this website and these podcasts is for informational purposes only. Nothing on this website and in these podcasts is intended to be a substitute for medical, health, therapeutic diagnosis or treatment. The opinions expressed by the guests in these podcasts are not necessarily the opinions of Amberlight International and anyone associated with this organization. Well, welcome everyone and welcome Alice. I'm so glad we were able to do this. I am too. You and I always have good conversations. We do. <laughs> we don't have enough of them, so maybe this will be a new start. So for people who are listening live, if you don't know Alice, Alice and I go back quite a ways. So officially, Alice McDowell has a doctorate as an author, spiritual director, workshop leader, retreat guide, and founder of a very successful program, the Hidden Treasure Program. Uh, that's a three-year training program in personal growth. She also co-founded Light on the Hill Retreat Center in Van Etten, New York in 1991. And if you haven't seen that center, it is one of the most inspiring centers to be in, to have a retreat. I don't know if we'll get to talk about one of my favorite stories from Alice is how they designed the hall, the main, the main portion of the center. So she's the author of her newest book, Dance of Light, Christian, Sufi, and Zen Wisdom for Today's Spiritual Seeker. She's been a professor of religious studies at Ithaca College in New York for 18 years, has taught courses in mysticism, world religions, depth psychology, women's studies, and received the Dana Fellow for Excellence in College Teaching. Her doctorate is in theology from Fordham University, and she's trained with Sufi and Buddhist teachers. Christian contemplatives and transpersonal psychologists. So quite a history, and it's, a, it's really a pleasure to delve into this. You know, when we were talking earlier about doing the podcast, you know, reading your book and talking to you has been a further inspiration. And one of the reasons that I wanted to talk with you and do the podcast is this direction that we're going in of being more and more collaborative and integrative that's become really important in my life. And the way you've done this in your life, some of which I didn't know until we started talking, and now presented it in your book, has really been an inspiration. Because when I read your book, I can see how anyone from any path or developing their own unique spiritual path have markers along the way. And to be able to do that in such a clear way is really exciting. So I just want to compliment you right from the very beginning and suggest to people, read her book, Dance of Light. It's available on Amazon and other booksellers. So Alice, can you give us a little bit more background about how you developed this interest of integrating everything in such, in such a beautiful way? That's a really good question. I guess it came when I started teaching at Ithaca College, and I couldn't teach my particular stream, which at that time was Christianity, because it was not a religious school. And so I had to be more eclectic than that. And especially when I taught world religions, 
I delved into all the different traditions that were there. So that's always been my orientation. And when we decided to create Light on the Hill, we said it was uh, anybody turned towards the light would be welcome. So it is very ecumenical in itself. And we have people come who are from all kinds of different traditions. So that's my orientation. Your teaching position at Ithaca College in religious studies? Yes. So I'm curious, when you did your doctorate, that was the orientation was Christian, correct? Yes. Right. Though I had a really great professor, Thomas Berry, who was one of the pioneers in spirituality and ecology. And he was one, I guess, right then that oriented me because he said, I don't just want tulips in my garden. I want roses and daffodils and asters. So he wanted all the traditions. And he talked about having a world Bible where all of the spiritual texts would be in one volume. So I guess he was the one that, uh, he was interesting. He was a passionate priest, but really open-minded. In fact, Fordham was very open-minded. I was just amazed at the breadth of knowledge that I gained there. I didn't know that. That surprises me to hear that. But it's also very inspiring. And it maybe it's because I'm a psychiatrist, retired. But still, the, the influence that a, a teacher can have, a person can have, they can really set a trajectory. And, you know, to be in a doctorate program that's heavily Christian and still be open and then being influenced by this great person. It's just a reminder to us the influence that we can have on people just as people can have on us and can set people on a direction. So that's really interesting to me because the experiences I've had, I didn't meet anybody who was as prominent as Thomas Berry. The people I met tended to be much more interested on you have to stay on this narrow path. You really can't deviate. You have to do this one thing. And even professionally, I tend to be pretty integrative as a psychiatrist. But even then, there was, there was the tendency of, of, no, this is, this is the concept you need to learn, and this is what you have to stay with. And you have to be very careful about integrating. Because we talked about this a little bit. It took me longer, I think, to feel freed up to be able to have more than just tulips. So I think highlighting that is good for us to do, to remember how influential people can be. Yeah, I don't know how early it was for me to realize that it is the guidance from within that's most important rather than what the outer says. Yes. So, and there's something I was going to say, and I've just forgotten what it is, but yeah. it will come back to me, I'm sure. <laughs> Even I think we can be passionate about discovering something and wanting to share it with people, but being passionate and open-minded like Thomas Berry, you know, or saying, yes, this is so important to me. I think this might be so helpful to learn. Let's study this together. But at the same time, there's more out there that can be integrated. Again, I had more of a dogmatic, this is what you should be learning, and this is only what you should be learning. So you got an earlier dose of being open. That's true. I thought of what I was going to say. Even early on at uh, Fordham, 
I realized that it was religious experience that created these traditions. Moses' experience on Mount Sinai, Jesus' apostles at seeing the resurrected Jesus, Muhammad in the cave where Gabriel spoke to him. And I realized I want to study religious experience that all these people had. And is there any similarities between the kinds of experiences that they had? So right away there, I think it was ecumenical. Yes. And then it sounds like your teaching experience, you know, my experience with teaching students is you just get challenged all the time and they help open up, if you're open to it, to new ideas. And it sounds like that was the kind of teaching experience you had as well. Yes. And I found those who had that traditional training were hardest to teach. They had to undo some of that training and then speak. Whereas those who hadn't had much religious background were able to grasp right away what was going on. Isn't that interesting? Because some of the more narrow paths I've been on say almost the same thing. They say, oh, you have to unlearn anything else just so you, you can learn this. You can think of that either way. I like the idea that we're coming around to and, and that I think you've demonstrated in your book so beautifully is that you can study deeply and you can still have a very open and accepting mind and be able to either follow a path or follow two paths or develop your own path. And it sounds like you have personal experience with that and you're sharing that. Again and again, I'm thinking, that the era that we're in and the era that we're ushering in is so much more feminine, collaborative, integrative. I think we're getting out of the everything has to be narrow and a secret and patented and you can't share this and you can't share that. And I think we're getting beyond that. Yes, thank God. For people who haven't read your book yet, can you give a little bit of an outline maybe of what you were trying to do in your book? I guide many people on their spiritual journeys, and I wanted a book that would help them, guide them through, see what pitfalls there were, see what the trajectory of the life was like. So, you know, at first I got just got the guidance write down what you've learned, write down the wisdom you've learned. And when I thought about how should I do that, I went back to my teaching on mysticism, Evelyn Underhill's book on the stages of the spiritual journey. And some of those go back very early in the Christian tradition. And then saw how the Zen oxherding pictures were very similar in the stages of the path. And I started to compare those early on. And then when I, in later in life, decided to write this book, I thought I would go back there and start with the stages. And this is a certain type of spirituality called in the Christian tradition, cataphatic mysticism. It means an inclusion. And then there's also aphophatic mysticism, which is more a direct path there without the inclusion of stages and stages and states and art and music. And that is just usually just direct through meditation. So my path, I didn't even know about the direct way. 
So I wandered in the stages path, a more indirect way. And that's more what the book is about. And I think many people, that's what it's about for them. So these stages included the dark wood where people find themselves again and again, where the path has ended. And when it is a confusion state, the old is gone and the new is not yet there. And there's a bewilderness. And so I keep going with finding a way, at least for the time being, and then an awakening stage, a stage of purification, which takes up most of our lives. And that is to let go of all that does not serve us, to find our true self. And there are four chapters of the 14 chapters of the book dedicated to purification. It's the longest section because it's most important. I mean, people might think that these great spiritual experiences are the most important. No, I would say it's the clearing of all that does not serve you and to arise to your true self. So then there's illumination. This is awakening in a longer period of time and all kinds of wonderful things happen here. There's what's called the development of the spiritual senses, which is auditions or visions or even touch and smell. You can hear inner smells that aren't there in the outer world hear beautiful music, increase your creativity and your intuition. So that's a wonderful stage, but it's followed. And just to know, it's not this logical order. It's back and forth between these stages. That's why it's called a dance, dance of light. After logically, after illumination comes the dark night of the soul. And that's a place that people understand and know. Everything goes, even color may go and just in a state of total bewilderness. And what's the purpose of this? The purpose is to free you from those last habits and thought forms that you still are hanging on to. It clears that. So there's no longer that sense of personality that's gone. And you're just there having to endure it until the final stage, which is called the state of union or unitive consciousness, where you're totally identified with the all. I call it the radiant all or the great mystery. And out of that comes how you affect our effective person in the world. And there's a lot that goes on, even in meditation, how much that can help other people. So that's the basic outline. Great outline. And again, it's so open to whatever exoteric religion someone may follow or even no religion they're just stages on the path so you mentioned the two the stage path which most of us are probably on and been familiar with and then the direct path and i've been doing some reading with from paul brunton and the influence from ramana maharshi and brunton mm-hmm. talks about most people are on what he calls the long path and The point he makes is at some point you have to get off of that. You have to get onto what he calls the short path, which is more of the direct experience. And if I understand him correctly, he does say, as you did, some people just, they just get on that direct path, but there are dangers with doing that too quickly that some, and I think it's what you're speaking to that long stage of what 
you've called purification. That word still bothers me. We've teased each other about <laughs> you know, four chapters worth. That there are things you have to do to get ready to have that experience. Some people don't need to have that. But if you try to have that and you're not prepared, there can be a lot of damage. And he talks about especially inflation and grandiosity, where you think these experiences mean you're God, essentially. On the other hand, if you stay on the long path and you feel like you're supposed to be committed to that and never get off of it, then you don't have that experience, that unitary experience you've been talking about. So to me, that makes, that makes sense, that they're not exclusionary, that one feeds into the other. And it isn't absolute, but like you said, for most of us, we're on this longer circuitous path that has stages in it. But at some point, you're saying after the dark night, there's the potential to have this direct experience. You have the direct experience all the way along. You have the experience using the purification. And I debated whether to use that term. It's a classical term in the Christian tradition. But detachment doesn't account for the transformation part of, of purification. Yes, you let go of something, but you also transform those parts of yourself that are not serving you, but are part of you and that you need. And that's where the transformation process happens. And also, Brunton talks about toggling between the short and the long paths. So that he feels, and you know, and this is written in my book, a year or two, you should be uh, having some experiences of both. And that way, there's a richness that's there, but you're not getting stuck in one particular path. So I like that perspective. Yes, I like that too. So talk a little more about purification since you, you and I joked about that. <laughs> yeah. Well, what are the things that don't serve you? There could be certain habits that are not very good for you. There could be certain wounds from childhood that still influence your behaviors today if they haven't been healed. And you as a psychiatrist would certainly know this. There's the cultural influence. And there is also a need to detach or have the right relationships to your identities. Some people just think they're a mother or they're a professional. Or for me, it was that I was spiritual. And I realized that had to go as well. That was an identity that I was having. And I needed to move even beyond that. So there are many, many things in this purification stage. And I do spend a chapter on how that happens in your life, starting with an experience of birth, of giving birth, of parenthood, of illness. Illness is a great purifier. I mean, you have to let go of looks and feeling well and everything else with that. Aging does the same thing. So there's a lot in just our everyday life as we live through life that purification happens. I also think it's important to distinguish between active and passive purification. And if you find a better word for purification, Wadud, please let me know. <laughs> okay. Active 
purification is when you actually do something, you decide not to do a certain habit or you decide to go to a self-improvement program or something like that. Passive purgation, it happens to you. You wouldn't want it in your life, but it happens to you. And as a result of that, certain things that don't serve you get pushed away. So I think it's important when certain things happen to you that you feel is terrible and all of that, you might want to look at it in terms of purification or passive purification. Perhaps there's a purpose to the angst or the sorrow or everything that is going through you at any particular point in time. I agree with you. I really liked your description of active and passive. That gave a lot of meaning to experiences that I've had. But you also, when we were talking about another word, you had, I can't remember the word that I suggested, but you said, no, that doesn't include the transformational element. And so one of your chapters talks about the renewing light, the transformation. And can you talk a little about that? There are certain parts of ourselves that contain energy. And if we get rid of them, some of our energy also gets lost. And we don't want that. We want to be energetically whole. And so rather than let going or detaching from it, we move it into a more transformed state that is in agreement with our true self. So for instance, childhood wounds that keep us in certain patterns. Well, the way to work is to heal those wounds. And there are many techniques today that can help you heal those wounds. So it no longer is taking energy away from you, but is now part of you working in the same direction. And so I list a whole bunch of techniques and ways that this can happen. One of the ways I like the most is by Lama Tulsum Alioni, an American woman Lama. And she went back to 14th century in Thailand and did this updated, this technique by a Tibetan woman back at that time called feeding your demons. And it's a way not of getting rid of your demons, which do contain some of your energy, but rather to dialogue with a demon and ask for questions and use visualization and as a result of this technique, the demon transforms into an ally rather than taking away, but helping the person. So that to me is a positive way, a transformation way, a way through love rather than through negation. Yeah, but that's, that's a wonderful example. And I think it's, it's really inspiring. So, you know, as a psychiatrist, a lot of our work was labeling and trying to get rid of something especially quickly with medication and short-term therapies. And also, you know, I've become fond of James Hillman and his work. And he talks a lot about we're programmed to think, at least in our culture, your parents are to blame for everything wrong in your life. I'm exaggerating. But that's, he calls it the parental fallacy. And he says, it's not really like that. What you're buying into is what the culture is teaching you and conditioning you to believe. And you take that on. But in fact, some of those experiences are what you needed to help you grow. Some of us are exploring some shamanic work. And 
journeys into the lower world to find your ancestors, to find what it is they were really trying to do that may have become distorted, that you've inherited, and trying to get that back on track and healing that and making it a positive influence in your life. Again, it sounds very familiar to the kind of transformation you're talking about. And like you said, there's so many different ways of doing it, but we have to allow ourselves to stop with the labeling. We have to get rid of it. It's only bad. If this happened to me, then I must be traumatized and all of those things that we can get into. Yes, I couldn't agree more that what some of these things that happen to us are for our spiritual growth and not just some horrible thing. And one example I use is when my kids used to get shots at the doctors or if they got a wound stitched and all I could feel was the pain and they were angry at me for letting them experience this. And I think we do the same thing for things that happen in our life. When we feel the pain and that, we get angry. We say this shouldn't happen to us, but often don't realize till later, ah, this changed me. This was for my greater good, even though it was painful. Michael Mee talks about the drama of life is what grows your soul. And I've always appreciated that. Yeah, that's very nice. So after that, you go on and say there's a clarifying light in your daily life. Yes, and that's what I talked about, that different stages of your life, passive purification might happen or say your kid gets up in the middle of the night and you wanted to sleep or you planned on the nap time and it didn't happen. You had to give things up that you wanted to do. That's a great way of letting go of control and of what the ego wants. And so there are all these instances in our lives that have that, that are really for our growth. I took a workshop with John Kabat-Zinn and he was teaching doing body scans and a, a little bit of yoga. And I remember he said, so you're a parent with a, an infant or a toddler and you wanna do yoga, but they wanna play with you. So he said, you know, you can lie on your back, pick them up and raise them and lower them and raise them and lower them. And he's saying, you're paying attention to what your body's doing. You're doing your practice. You don't have to just get in an isolated room you know, he was trying to say you make it part of your everyday life and you use what's in your life for that purpose. And it takes a little bit of creativity, maybe. What I caught is, and I think I'm, I'm understanding this from you, the more you consciously realize, oh, that's what I'm able to do, it changes your whole attitude and your experience with whatever you're going through. Very true. Every moment is almost an opportunity for growth. Yes. It's, like, it's another way of saying you never fail. Everything is a step in a certain direction. And I don't think we've done well enough believing that and teaching that. And in my experience, at least, there's been such a, you know, somebody wins and somebody loses. And I, I think what you're helping us see more clearly is it's a win-win. Part of it is you just change your attitude and you take advantage of whatever is happening to you. And you could not change your attitude. I mean, that's where the choice is. Yes. You right. can say, I, I refuse to be conscious. <laughs> or right. I don't want to think about this consciously. You know? Right. 
So I think a lot of that has to do with the conditioning that we talked about a little bit earlier, that we have to be careful that our culture has conditioned us to think and act in certain ways. And sometimes going against that conditioning, maybe against the conditioning of, no, 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 this is the only thing you can believe. Anything else is heresy. You can't do that. Going against that conditioning is different. That takes a certain amount of courage, depending on the culture in which you're raised. That's true. And as you speak, I think back to my family. And my mother was Catholic and my father a Methodist. And my mother had an aunt in Belgium and went to school there. And Belgian Catholicism is very different from Irish Catholicism. It isn't so rule-oriented. It's much more open to experience than that. So I really was blessed to have such a heritage yes. of this openness. Yes, that's right. It's, again, it's just really interesting how we get influenced and, in a sense, conditioned in different ways. I, I got conditioned more narrowly, and I felt like I had to rebel. And you had some mm -hmm. openness in the beginning that you could you could continue with, you know. After this, I still have a hard time saying the word purification. I'm sorry. After this, <laughs> four chapters worth of something we have to get a new word for. Um, letting go and letting transforming. Go. You can letting do go two and transforming. All right. LNT, the LNT stage. Once you get through that, there's a chance for more illumination. So you talked about uh, some interesting experiences that people might have on the path. Go into that a little bit more. I will, but I do want to say that you never finish with purification and transforming. <laughs> it's not, oh, I finished with this and now I get this. No, there's a back and forth that you have these illumination experiences. Then you might go, oh, a little bit more that I have to let go of or transform and back and forth and back to the dark wood where, oh, I don't know what I'm doing now. So just to say that. And yes. illumination, what would you like me to say specifically? Are you interested, what, in the spiritual senses? Are you interested in the increase in creativity? Or what particular well, do you want me to address? I'll tell you what's, what, well, what strikes me is that people start to have experiences and they misinterpret them. And I'm not sure that was a major feature you talked about in the book, but you can have so you mentioned in in the introduction, as we were talking, I mean, about experiences where you, you might see colors or you might, there might be visions, certain capacities develop, like maybe you didn't say this, but maybe more telepathy or your intuition increases. And some people get scared by those and they deny them because it's, it just, you know, they think they're crazy or they're told they're crazy if they talk to the wrong psychiatrist. On the other hand, people can have an experience like that and say, oh, I'm fully enlightened. That's all there is to it. I've made it. How would you explain a little bit better what those experiences are, why they're happening on the path? What does it mean when they happen? It basically means that you're progressing, but you don't even have to have any of them at all. They're not as important as people think they are. They're kind of like candy, if you want. 
And I think the Zen tradition is very good with this. They call all of this makyo illusions. Right. But they also say having these things shows you're progressing in your meditation. And I think part of the dark night of the soul is to get rid of the feeling, oh, I've made it. You know, it shows you, oh, no, you have not made it at all. And any kind of bragging that someone could do, that goes in the dark night. Or thinking you're the special one in your community. You're the teacher's Mm -hmm. favorite. Things Mm -hmm. like that, that are more spiritual obstacles. That's one of the purposes of the dark night. It's to eliminate that. So you no longer think those thoughts. It's interesting. On On the stage path that most of us are in, depending on I don't know about most of the people on this recording. A lot of us I know have spiritual guides. I have a guide. I also guide people. You do the same thing. And my experience has been that there are certain guides who themselves get terrified when their students they're with start to have experiences and are so afraid that that will lead their students to feel inflated and grandiose that they actually block the experience not purposely. And a lot of what I had been hearing in the path I was following was that concern. So there was like, what it felt like to me was an overemphasis and a fear that, no, 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 you're inflated, you're starting to get grandiose, you need to go on retreat, you're feeling that way because your ego is getting too involved. And that can be correct, but it can also be a misinterpretation based on fear, that somebody's not appreciating, oh no, that's a sign on the path, and they have to be encouraged, including don't get attached to those things. Like you said, the Zenis say, those are makio, they're just signs, they may or may not happen. If they do, okay, but don't get attached to them. So I think it's important that we get it right, that you don't scare people, and keep on telling them, oh, no, 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 that's your ego, when no, something is really happening. And something is coming through, the spirit of guidance is coming through. You don't want to tell people not to pay attention to that. So I've seen more of that, actually, than the other. I don't know, what's your experience been with that? My experience is more what I've guided other people. And I haven't seen it that much uh, because I affirm it, but I don't have them dwell upon them. I just Mm -hmm. keep going, Mm -hmm. you know, that idea. But I've seen a lot of times certain uh, spiritual groups don't want you to meditate because they feel you'll get into some kind of space where the devil can come in and be an influence on you. And my answer to that always is, well, yeah, there are dangers driving a car, but the benefits outweigh the dangers. Mm -hmm. And there are ways to prevent car accidents and that. And there are are ways to prevent this as well from anything negative coming in. Right. So experiences that in the normal everyday American and maybe Canadian culture, if you talk about them, people will look at you like, what have you taken lately? Those can be signs on the path. And don't hold on to them. They don't necessarily happen. But 
use them for what they're worth at the time and keep moving. Mm-hmm. Yes. So the dark night that you put next is in your book, you refer to it as it reminded me of uh, you have experience as an infant and as a toddler, and then they come back again as an adolescent, just in a different way. You had said that the uh, dark night is a little bit like feeling lost in the dark wood, but a lot worse. Yes. Thoughts go. Images go. And that's not true in the dark wood stage, where you still are cognitively aware that you don't know where you're going. But it's like everything just stops with the dark night. And you might be a better person to address this, but I couldn't tell in certain instances where a deep depression and the dark night, how are they different? I kind of know that they are, but I couldn't put my finger on why Mm -hmm. those two Mm -hmm. are different. Yeah, that's a good point. I don't think I had any training in that as a psychiatrist. My psychiatry training was really traditional. I always thought from what I read that transpersonal psychology and psychiatry, and you have some experience with that in your training, right? They have better training in that and are more open to that. Was that your experience working with transpersonal psychologists? Yes, definitely. Yeah, I had to kind of learn that on my own. There is that Jungian idea or in transpersonal psychology, there's something beyond the personal. And what some of these experiences are coming from, what is beyond the personal? Right. I've really gotten into Jung lately, past 10 years or so. But early in my training, it was conservative enough that if you got interested in Jung, people would think, why are you reading that stuff? So it was interesting. And I was attracted to it early on. But where I trained, there was not a heavy Jungian influence. So I really didn't have any people to talk to. I would do reading on my own, and then I got caught up on other things. But I think you're right. And I don't think it's, I've had the experience of people calling me up. And it wasn't about, it wasn't the dark wood so much, but just if you can broaden that a little bit into, I've had guides call me up and say, the student I'm working with is having this experience. And I think it's mystical, but I can't quite tell. And can we talk about this a little bit? And so I would talk to them or the person, and I think I could usually tell, but I, I can't always tell you why I can tell that. You know, I think it's like a, either a sixth sense. There, I guess there are particular things I look for. The big thing for me, I think, is whether somebody has the capacity to tolerate it and, and have an understanding of what's going on and can tolerate the suffering. So. I think you can be in the, in what you're calling the dark night, and if it kicks into, I can't sleep, I can't eat, and I just want to commit suicide, I think you can get that from the experience of the dark night, but then it, it's along with having a significant depression, and you have to protect people and you have to help them. I don't think it's an either or. It could be either or and both. You know, I think one can lead to the other. Does that make sense to you? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And you were saying about there's a sixth sense to somehow know what kind of experience the person has. And I agree with you that a lot. It just, it develops in one. I call it the bullshit factor. 
You know, you can tell mm-hmm. almost immediately that that is not an, something authentic. And um, yeah. yeah, as yeah. you develop a, as a guide, I think that happens. As you, as you develop as a person, that happens. People can sense, a lot of people can sense whether somebody is being authentic in what they say. Right. I remember a friend of mine who's a minister and she got up there and she wasn't centered for this Easter talk. And she said, the kids were shuffling their feet and people were moving around. And the next year when Easter came around, she said practically the same thing, but she was in a very centered place and not a noise happened. Everybody was engaged. So Mm. she even felt that kids very much sense whether you're in your truth or you're not. Yeah, yeah. I think also the context, it's helpful when you you know somebody over time. So, you know, I have worked with students for a long period of time and something happens, but I know the context and that's helped me a whole lot. And I think I've been able to share that with the student and say, you know, given what's been happening, yeah, this is what I think is going on. That's been really helpful. It's really hard to kind of come in with a cross-section and you don't know the person, you don't know how dedicated they were to their path or not. And, you know, that's the authenticity factor. So the context, the context helps a whole lot. And I think in your book, you put it in the context, you you know, you're saying, essentially, here's this stage path of spiritual development. And you can expect at some point to have an experience that might be really painful, that might feel like a depression, I've lost my connections with the divine, I, what's happening to me? And, but you, you're putting it in a context, you're saying, okay, now be careful, you know, if you need to get help, because it's flipped into a depression, go ahead and do that. But if it's in that context, then it, it could be another stage on the path. Yes, very true. Decades ago, I mean, a really long time ago, in Tricycle Magazine, the Buddhist magazine, it was when Prozac had first come out and it was being used all over the place. And there was an issue about depression and meditation and the use of antidepressants. It was really sad to read that. And what was sad is meditators who were clearly depressed and the recommendation was to go on Prozac. They go on Prozac, they feel better, and they say, I'm a failure because meditation didn't take care of this. Oh, my goodness. Other people who were able to say, oh, I can meditate so much better now that my depression is lifted. You know, this could be a whole other podcast that we could have about how you have to be careful as a caregiver, a mental health provider, and as a spiritual guide that there is an interaction. You know, it isn't one or the other. And uh, sometimes you have to you have to be aware of that. I hadn't thought of that in reading your in your book. I'm glad you brought that up, that some people may have that trouble distinguishing that, and that guides and caregivers may have trouble being able to tell the difference. So, you know, when in doubt, you get a good consultant and, and take care of yourself. Yes. And I also do mention that when I was in a period of bereftment, because uh, I realized I wasn't a spiritual person anymore, and that very core identity left. The guide said, look at what's happening around you. If people are being helped, if there's positivity, 
that's occurring, even though there's nothing inside you, then it's going in the right direction. And that was very helpful to me. Yes, that sounds like very good advice. So unitary consciousness. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and I have not been in unitary consciousness. I've, uh, it's more intermittent enlightenment, as Ajashanti says. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I took the different angles from the traditions, contemporary spiritual teachers, Sufis, Christians, Zen, to kind of, from these different angles, point to something and what they say about it. And one thing that my research brought to me was that you still have a personality. You don't have the ego getting in there. You need the ego. You need the paintbrush, but you don't want the paintbrush to paint the picture. You need it. But certain issues come up, but they clear almost immediately. They don't hang around. It's like, um, yeah, it's a, some kind of programming that's in you. So these kinds of things can come. Challenges can come. Some of these great masters had really hard challenges, but they feel underneath a peace and a love that's there all the time. So it's like, yeah, the waves of the ocean are there going up and down, but I'm my consciousness is more in this deeper place, this peaceful state in mm. the depths of the ocean. That doesn't mean the waves aren't there. Right. So yeah. that's the best I can do about the <laughs> unitary state. <laughs> and the last stage is bringing it back in your life, being a light in the world, right? Yes. Again, yes. not sequentially, but just for the sake of the way the chapters were organized, you made a point. <laughs> right. right. You, you yeah. live the light, right? That's right. And no matter what stage you are, you can be an influence on other people. You can say, oh, I recommend this book, or have you thought of this, or whatever. It doesn't have to be you reach the enlightenment state, and then you have an effect on the world. They probably have more an effect than anybody, but you can have it all the way along. And one of the things I think is interesting is to show that experiment done in the Transcendental Meditation, where people a certain amount of people are brought into a city and the crime rate goes down. All they're doing is meditating. The crime rate goes down. And when they leave, the crime rate goes back up. And uh, I give a sighting from what happened in Washington, D.C. And the police were absolutely amazed that this happened. So even if you feel, suppose you're incapacitated, suppose you can't help others out there doing your meditation, has an effect. It raises up the vibration. And the more people that do it, the more the planet gets raised up. So I think that is important to know besides active participation in helping I, others. I think it's so-called act. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I also feel that I give examples of people's presence can transform another. They sort of act like a tuning fork to someone else and can help lift them up. One example I give is my first spiritual director, a Catholic priest who'd spent a year in solitude before he became a priest. He would walk into a hospital room 
and all the monitors will go back to normal for the patient. And uh, he said, I don't know, this just happens. <laughs> <laughs> so the more you develop, the more your presence has an effect on people. Yes. I, without I, doing. To get back to how this isn't linear, that you don't have to wait to have the experience of unitary consciousness to be aware that you're developing an atmosphere that can affect people and situations around you, even at a distance. Through Amberlight, we developed a course, I think I told you about it, called Being a Healing Presence. And it's an integration of mystical teachings from various traditions, especially Buddhist and Sufi, and humanistic psychology. And it's talking about what you're talking about. I mean, you know, my experience has been like you said, you keep on going back to purification. Well, you keep on coming back to developing your atmosphere and it, be, it becomes more powerful even without you knowing it and even at a distance. And that's what you're talking about. And the reason I had developed that course is that I learned about humanistic psychology as a psychiatrist, although I was pretty slow on the uptake to realize how powerful it was. When I did mystical training, especially in the Sufi tradition, I started to see how they were integrating. And they were both really talking, they use different words, but both disciplines were talking about developing atmosphere. And in the humanistic psychology, Carl Rogers says, you know, you only need three things. You need to have unconditional positive regard, also called non-possessive warmth. You respect and love people for who they are. You're authentic. You're not just playing a role. And you know how to be empathic. And you have to be able to communicate each of those things. When you do that, the atmosphere is what heals. And the techniques are just a way of getting the relationship to get to the point where that atmosphere does something. And then he elaborated into well, you know, it doesn't just have to be in therapy. You can do it in relationships, in your marriage, in schools, in groups. And to me, that's those are mystical teachings. That, that's what you're talking about, Alice. So I guess what I'm emphasizing is don't think you have to have the unitary experience. You, you don't even have to have the illuminative experience. We're all developing atmospheres, whether we are doing it consciously or not you're doing it anyways. Just put some consciousness to it and watch what starts to happen. Yes, I like those three conditions that you were talking about to develop presence. Yes. And it, it's really, you know, the last ox herding picture is that of returning to the marketplace with helping hands. And it says without, the Buddha is just walking into the marketplace, just going shopping, Gord on his back, and they say, without recourse to psychic powers, trees in his wake burst into bloom. That's so it. He's, the, he's just walking the, into the marketplace, yeah. and yet the atmosphere is transformed. That's I just it. love that, and that that's my goal in life. You know, I think of some of the people I've been around where, you know, Baba Alatunji, who's passed away now, he's an African drummer, and... Uh, he really made a big splash bringing African drumming to the States. So I went to one intensive with him, and he had his, his group with him when we were drumming and dancing. 
he originally came and he was going to be doing some philosophical training. And what took off was drumming. That was not what he intended to come here for. It was going to be some high academic something or other. And he said, based, I'm paraphrasing now, but basically, okay, if it's drumming, it's drumming, right? The form wasn't so important to him. He wanted to be a huge influence. That's what his teacher had told him, be a big influence. And so he thought it was going to be in some academic kind of way. It turned out to be African drumming. He accepted it. He promoted it. He made a big deal of it. And he basically said, this is how I'm influencing, changing the world. So we were at a camp and uh, I was going through a tough time. But I was having fun at the camp and I started to walk towards him. I didn't even realize he was there. He was sitting and I had my head bowed and I started to feel something. I, I can't quite tell you what it is. And before I could raise my head, I heard this voice say, you know, it's not that bad. <laughs> and I just looked up and there, <laughs> there he is. And, you know, and I know, I know he could tell I was struggling because my head was bowed and all of that. But I also know I felt something when I was getting close to him. And it's that kind of atmosphere. And as I think back on it, yeah, yeah, I know I was giving off these nonverbal cues, but I also know he had a sense. You know, he was a developed mystic. He could sense me. I could start to sense him because he was so powerful, right? And we had this funny little interchange that lifted my spirits. And I still think of it now. I mean, decades later, I still remember that experience. That's how powerful that can be. Yes. And one experience that I had when the Dalai Lama came to visit Ithaca and he was going to a nearby retreat center and we all got there ahead of time, my crown chakra and heart chakra opened up 15 minutes before he got there. So <laughs> he had a huge presence. <laughs> I've only seen him from a distance at a couple of conferences, but it's the same it's the same idea. It's the, the magnetism that he can have. So I'm hoping that everybody here has had experiences with people like that. My last one, because I just, my, the biggest experience in my life was my high school English teacher. Some people who work with me know, know this story, but he was like magic, just magic for me and for many other students. And it was his atmosphere. I have no doubt about that. And I modeled after him and I still remember him and I still feel him. And I went to visit him a few years before he died. He wasn't in the process of dying at the time, but I wanted to introduce my partner Kathleen to him because he was such a big influence in my life. And we walked in the door and that turkey, he looked at me and I had written something to him. He picked it up and he said, you know, you still can't get the grammar right. And he started... <laughs> And I just had a, you know, I just had a burst out. I could have kissed him. You know, he remembered me and he was absolutely right. And so, uh, yeah. So look at, we have, we had a suggestion for another name for purification from Arthur. Okay. He suggests regeneration. I did use that term. Mm -hmm. 
it doesn't quite do with the letting go. It addresses the transformation, but it doesn't address the detachment that well. Right. Whatever word I came up with addressed the detachment, but didn't address the transformation. Right. So I think we're going to have to use a combination here. <laughs> Somebody said, what about emptying? That's another one. Yeah. Yeah. That's a possibility too. Again, I don't think it quite addresses transformation. Yeah. <laughs> but there's got to be a better word. Yeah, we're working on it. I'm trying to find another word for God, and I just can't get it. And when I try to think of another word to describe, I, I guess the phrase I'm using now is ground of being. I like that more and more for what I'm intending. But, you know, when you use God and you're cursing, I can't find anything else that has quite the same punch as that. You know, you can't say, you know, you just nothing works. But you, I want another word, but I can't, I can't find one. So we'll keep working on it. Keep on sending your suggestions to her. We have another comment. Hold on for a second from Elaine. A friend often speaks of refinement. Hmm. That's a very refined word. Mm -hmm. That's a nice word. Refinement. Mm -hmm. Sufis talk about effacement. They also talk about polishing the heart. Okay. Polishing the heart. We'll keep working on it. I think the other comment that I wanted to make and what I loved about the book, and you reminded me of it when I, when I read the book, I was reading, I think it was Thomas More, and he wrote a book that I really like called A Religion of One's Own. I don't know if you've read that yet, Alice, or if you're a fan of Thomas No, More. I haven't. Yeah, I would really recommend it. And it's not, he's not describing stepwise stages, but he was really saying, we're all on a unique path and it's okay. It's okay for you to do whatever it takes to make that connection. And the advice he gave that really came to me, and I thought of it when I read your book, he said, most of us need help along the way. Just get somebody who knows what they're doing. So if you want to be on a path that's integrative, find someone who knows how to do that. So it's like, don't get on an integrate, don't try to be an integrative, integrated path like you're describing and have a guide who only knows how to do one thing and isn't open to something like that. I mean, it sounds like common sense, but it was just nice to read that. You know, I read Care of the Soul and I really liked that and, and I was reading his other things. And I never realized he was three months away from ordination, three months, and he couldn't do it. You read him, he's pretty Catholic as far as I'm concerned, and he basically says that, but he's integrated all these other things, right? You know, the courage it must have taken him to do that. And I can't remember his upbringing. Like you explained that in yours, you had an openness, unlike what I had. I don't know what his was. Yeah. So your book reminds me of that. And whatever it takes, the form isn't as important as I want to have this experience of being oneness and bringing light into the world. Whatever it takes to get there, get there. And this is what you can expect on whatever path you're on. So we could be talking about Sufism and you go through the same thing, right? Or you're, it doesn't, You'll use different words, maybe, but you're having the same experiences. And that's, I think that's what's so valuable in what you've outlined. You've made it open to anybody. And I really appreciate the work you've put in.
Well, thank you. And if those people are interested in buying the book, you can order it. Your local bookstore can order it through Ingram or through Amazon. I'll just put that plug in. Yes. And I really enjoyed our conversation. It brought a lot to it, a lot of wisdom to it. You know, Alice and I knew this, and I usually say this in the beginning, but if you're new to the podcast, it's supposed to be a conversation, which is what I love about talking with Alice. You know, I know you're going to have podcasts where it's more of an interview only. The whole point of calling it Alchemical Dialogues is that it's a real dialogue. So we didn't script this, and I think we got into some things that we probably didn't expect we would get into, because this is what happens. And the idea, kind of like the dance of light, the idea is through authentic dialoguing, and hopefully this was mostly 80% Alice and 20% me, give or take, there's a dance, there's a dialogue. And through that, something changes, something comes through. So if you're new to the podcast, that's what we do. And we have one coming up in October, the end of October, on spirituality and religion, uh, the differences and similarities and what difference that makes. And that's very much in line with what we talked about. That's a panel discussion. And there'll be five of us from different traditions with a lot of overlap. So I think that would be a nice follow up to what Alice and I just talked about and her book, Dance of Light. So it's October 28th, and there'll be an announcement for that. So that might be of interest to you. So thank you all. And thank you, Alice. I hope we get to do it again. Thank you. I hope we see you soon. If you find yourself enjoying our podcasts, please do us a favor and spread the word. Tell a friend about it. Give us a review on iTunes or post it on social media. If you or someone you know would like to participate in a future podcast, please connect with us through the Contact Us page. See our events calendar page for dates to our next live podcast recordings. We'd love for you to participate and ask questions. And be sure to check out Joel Lessie's podcast, Unraveling Religion, on your favorite podcast app. Alchemical Dialogues are live and unscripted conversations recorded on Zoom, brought to you by the great folks of Amber Light International, a nonprofit organization co-founded by Henry Curtella, M.D., and Kathleen Fitzpatrick, LCSW. We choose topics from our current social and cultural climate with an emphasis on humanism and spirituality.